Well, this is the time of year that uh, there are a lot of those kind of white invitations that are coming in the mail, or you might have already gotten some. It's the time of year a lot of people, especially in the Pacific Northwest, get married. Uh, and, and weddings are kind of an interesting thing. How many of you remember going to weddings when you were a little kid? Right? How many of you liked going to weddings when you were a little kid? Some of the gals in here. So, you know, some people, it's like, it's just such a beautiful thing, right? The wedding is such a beautiful thing. I remember as a little kid going to weddings and just being like, is this over yet? <laughs> it's like, okay, uh-huh. they're going to say those words that everybody says, right? Till death do us part and yada, yada, yada. And then there's food, cake. Yay, good, let's go. Let's get to the reception. But I'll tell you what, as I grew up, Got a little bit more understanding of what was happening. And then there was a very specific day that that changed for me. That was December 1st, 2012, because that was the day that I woke up. I woke up in Chehalis, Washington, and as I was driving down the road, there was a rainbow. I'm not kidding you. There was a rainbow. It was December, and it, there was a rainbow in Chehalis, and I was, I, was, I was sure that that was a sign for me. Uh, but as I drove, I went and we picked up some friends and headed to the church to get ready and got all dressed up and uh, got to see Kayla. And she sang me a song that she wrote. And I don't think she sang it for anybody else, just me. Anyway, uh, and then we got to, I said some words and those words had meaning. <laughs> it was significant to me in a different way because the because I, I was really concerned and thoughtful about what I was saying and what we were doing. And, and that day changed the way that I view weddings. Now I can't go to a wedding without getting emotional. <laughs> and I sit there and I'm just like, oh, and I've gotten to perform some weddings. And it's so fun to watch the bride and the groom especially. Because whatever happens in life, that day is special. But can I tell you that weddings, <laughs> the significance of that day is 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 has taken on a new meaning for me but the point of that day isn't just to have a big party it's a celebration and a commemoration of a of a commitment of a covenant that's made in our culture a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on the ceremony itself and the wedding and people spend so much money on it and yet the the meaning of it has been lost even more and more and, it, and for Christians, it, it's even a bigger thing because it's not, just, it's not just about your relationship. It's actually painting a picture of the kingdom of God. That a wedding has a specific illustration for us. It's, and everybody who's gone through that, no matter what, you remember that day, the anticipation and the excitement. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful image. But weddings today are treated more like an excuse to throw a party and an expensive party at that, Right? And you all know that the bride's family usually has to pay for most of that. And so Kayla and I are very excited because it's looking like we're still only going to be paying for one wedding. So we found out this week that the twins are boys. (laughs) So that's kind of exciting news for us. I mean, not that that's the only thing that I was thinking about, but that's just just one small, small little thing as we think through the the positives of having boys. Um, But... Yeah, Ember's going to have to figure out how to yeah, share, and, and the toys in our house are going to go from Little Mermaid, Ariel, and all that stuff to hopefully some Star Wars stuff and some 
Tonka trucks and dump and Ember's Ember's gonna love it. I can't wait. And, and the books that we have around the house, it's gonna we're gonna get some more like treasure islands and that kind of stuff and get pirate anyway. So our world's changing. I just had to let you guys know that. But back to my point, <laughs> because I'm I'm not just talking about weddings just for fun. But we're we're talking through this this scripture in Hebrews where uh, we're, we're, we've been talking about the imagery that God uses. That God is like a divine playwright. He's, he's written these stories and he's written these things even into the reality of the world around us that are meant to, to paint a picture, to draw our attention to something such, something of significance. It's not just about a wedding ceremony. And weddings today are treated like just an excuse for a huge party. And, and, and the covenant promise that was meant to be demonstrated is lost to many people in the world. Marriage and weddings Paint us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. That at one day, just as, as a bride and groom who've waited their whole lives to be together, just as, as they have an excitement and anticipation, there's coming a day when Christ will return for his bride, and that's us. And some of you men have a hard time recognizing that you're actually a bride. Uh, but we're a part of the bride of Christ that one day, this promise that we've been given will be consummated as we get to spend eternity with him. And that's the picture of what a wedding is, regardless of, of what else happens. That picture is something we can understand, that God communicates deep truths about himself through things that we can understand. It's, it's how we communicate in the world. It makes sense that scriptures would be full of imagery and full of, of pictures that would tell us something about who God is. And human marriage is a shadow and a copy of that relationship that God instigated with us. It's a, it's a picture of, of a relationship that God has instigated with us. A covenant is a picture of that, that God has said, I'm going to be faithful regardless. I'm going to be faithful regardless. And ultimately, human marriage is just a shadow, a copy, and sometimes a very poor one, and it, and it can fall apart because we're human. <laughs> and it makes me even more grateful that God is not like us. That he's not like us, that he continues to be faithful no matter what our struggles are. But it's a picture, that covenant, merit, that covenant is a picture of the kind of relationship that God has intended for us. It's one image, it's just one image that's used throughout scripture, throughout all of the things in the world to, to show us who God is. And we shouldn't take that image and worship it, right? It'd be like, I was thinking about my wedding ring and the significance of it. It'd be like if you've ever met somebody, if they felt like um, if they weren't wearing their ring, like they weren't married. It's like, no, I've taken my ring off, and sometimes I've almost lost it. I've never lost it. <laughs> but even if it wasn't on my finger, <laughs> the significance of what it stands for is still true, right? We don't take these symbols, and we don't, we don't turn them into the thing itself. What if I treated my, or not, maybe not mine, mine was... Mine's just tungsten. It's not really worth very much. But some gals might have a ring that's really expensive. What if you treated that with more respect than your husband? <laughs> that would be a bad thing, right? But this, this, there is a significance to it. So we, see, we can understand that. But what's happened throughout time and in every single person's life is we take things that are supposed to have significance and we make them the thing. <laughs> we elevate the symbol to the, the status of the thing. And that's what happens in religion. It's this, it's this tendency that we have. And God, who's, who's a, 
kind of a cosmic playwright as he's communicating to us as humans. He's communicating through different authors, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's using imagery and he's using these things to tell us something about us. Whether or not you think it's true or not, it's true of the human heart that we do that. It's true. We're going to keep diving into that. Today in Hebrews chapter 9, we're looking more at the idea, and it's not talking about weddings. It's talking about the tabernacle. It's talking about the temple. This was something that was so significant to the Jewish people. It was their, uh, their place of worship, but it turned into something that it was never meant to be. It turned into something that it was never meant to be as they elevated the significance of these rituals to the place of God. And, they, they, and it was something that God was constantly having to, to remind them, that's not what it's about. You look through the Old Testament, and there's a lot of warnings against uh, falling away, but there are just as many warnings against doing the rituals and not letting your heart be transformed. When Jesus came, who did he speak most harshly to? It wasn't to sinners and those that were out there doing the evil things. It was to the the Jews, the religious leaders, the elite, those who by the outward appearance looked like they had it all together. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that because we're understanding more that, that this picture, the, the Jewish system, the Mosaic system, all of it was intended not to, be a, not to be the thing. It was intended to be a symbol of the thing. And that Jesus has come. He's the one whom it all points to. So we talked about that last week as we look at that. And Hebrews chapter 9 is going to pick right up here with this idea of the tabernacle. And so here's what it says, Hebrews 9, chapter 1. It says, or verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstands and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. So, for those of you who are really interested in this stuff, you have some details as to what this tabernacle was. And you see these things, these specific things that the author references, they would have had meaning to the people. To me, it doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning, right? <laughs> the lampstand, all right, cool. The bread of the presence, I don't really know what that is, right? We don't have this picture. Even, even he acknowledges, or the author acknowledges that these are things that we can't speak into much detail right now because this is well after that time period. This is, this is a generation later. These, so this, this idea, they, 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 don't, um, they don't follow that anymore, the, the, those Christians, but there's still something there that they understood, that the, there's a mercy seat. Each part of this, the, the staff that budded, the urn that holds the manna, all of it had significance. It was all something that, that held meaning for them. And yet, for those that followed that, to, they, they got into this religious mindset. Those things actually became more important. And we have this picture here in verse 6 of the life of the tabernacle, that it's something that they're regularly doing. That's a way of saying that there's constant life, this place is buzzing. 
as people are coming and the priests are going in and they're performing these rituals. It's something that's happening nonstop. It's like a never-ending church service, right? It's like uh, 24 hours a day. So no matter what time of the day you had to get your conscience cleaned, you could head to the temple and there would be somebody there, a priest, to, to walk you through these rituals. So it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. And that's, that's kind of the picture that, that this author is painting for us. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. They're performing their ritual duties. And that's a, uh, that's an, uh, a word that describes a, a very religious act. How many of you do things religiously? You should all have your hand up, right? How many of you brush your teeth, right? <laughs> Like, we have these things that we do that we stop thinking about, right? That's the kind of image that I get when I think of a ritual duty. It's just something I have to do. It's just something that needs to be done in order to, for life to continue on. Many of you think about your teeth every time you brush them. Like, oh, I'm so thankful for my teeth. They help me chew the meat. And what would my life be like without my teeth? You don't do it. You just do it, right? You don't think about it. You just brush. Anyway. Now you're going to think about it tonight. You're welcome. I sing a song with Ember about how much we appreciate our teeth. Because they're really important. You've got to take care of them. Anyway, those of you who don't have your teeth anymore, you know. <laughs> but this idea of ritual duties, it's something that, that we all have a tendency to do. It's like even coming to church on Sunday morning. Can I tell you there are times... And I'm just like, man, it's, it's Sunday again. And I'm being really honest with you guys. So don't, don't judge me. <laughs> I'm like, I have, to, I have to engage my mind and go, God, don't let me. Don't let us treat this like a ritual duty. Don't let it become something that we just merely show up because it's Sunday morning. We fail to engage Almighty God. So you can see how it becomes ritual duty. <laughs> when I do that, when I break free of that, suddenly there's excitement and energy again. It's not like, okay, we gotta go. All right, hope everything turns out okay. <laughs> right? But we do it every week. It's, it's, it's something we built into our rhythm to constantly remind us every week of the goodness of the grace of Jesus. Sometimes I get up here and I'm talking about the gospel and it feels like it's a ritual duty and it frustrates me. I'm like, man, why does this feel like it, it's not got my heart involved in it? Anyway, so we understand that. <laughs> there's a deficiency to that. That terminology, there's a deficiency to it. As if God just wanted us to continue to do the same things forever. No. It says in verse 7, it says, but into the second, this is the second part of the the tent. Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now here we're going to get into the deficiencies of this system of coming and trying to get the conscience clean, cleansed. Has anybody in here ever had a troubled conscience? Good, six of you. The rest of you have no soul. <laughs> I, this is a part of being a human I, I hate to tell you is this conscience 
And it, I don't know what your conscience tells you or what is spoken to you in your conscience, but we have these moments where, where we have a, a trouble. There's something that's troubling us. It might be stirred by something that somebody else said. It might be stirred by something we did, but it, it, it comes to us. These, these things come to us, and, and, and we need to try and find peace. And so here's this, this first system. You had to go to the temple, and this is what it says in verse 8 and 9. It says, but the, by the Holy Spirit, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. So here's, here's where I want to I take a moment because it's the Holy Spirit is painting us a picture through this system that's set up. What it's saying is in this present age, there is no way into the holy place. There is no way to find peace as long as that curtain, that dividing wall is still there. For those who don't understand the way, there's no way. You can continue to offer sacrifices. You can continue to go through the ritual all of your life and not find that true peace, that true rest, the true place that our souls were intended to be, which is in the holy place, in the presence of God. There's a picture here that the priest, the high priest, had to go in only once a year. And the high priest, as deficient as the system is, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sin and go in. And, and at that, they tied a rope to him, right? And he had bells, and if they stopped hearing the bell move around, they'd pull his body out because he wasn't a clean instrument. So we have this picture that in our world, in this present age, no matter what your religious system is, and, and we've talked about this, and, and I hope you're starting to pick up on this, is you have a religious system by nature, there's some element, even the people who say they're most irreligious have some sort of composed, maybe not formal, list of rules and regulations to follow to be, in their mind, a good person. Even if, in their mind, the only way to do that is to not follow any lists. You just created a list. So we do this. But as long as that's the case, as long as we're looking for peace through our own list or through some list that's handed down to us, we cannot enter past that second curtain. We cannot. We will not find rest. We will not find peace. This is a symbol. This symbol that was in the, the mosaic tabernacle. It was meant to tell us that. So there, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, we pick up back in verse 9, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Did you catch that? This system that was in place could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's why the, the activity of the temple was constant. I mean, I, I, I can imagine, knowing my own life, that... I just left the temple after making sacrifice and having to meet with the priest. And then I'm back home and I'm like, man, I just, I have something else now that I need to go back and offer another sacrifice. Or maybe I'll wait till tomorrow. But it's like a constant need to have sacrifices made and it never can cleanse. It can never produce a clean conscience. 
these things, they, they, it's what it says in verse 10, these, these sacrifices that are offered, they only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is a way to, to make it through life. This system, this system was put in place because God, when he spoke to Adam and Eve and every other person he's made covenant with, he said, you do these things. If you don't, you're going to die. So the sacrificial system became a way for the body to continue to live. So it cleanses, it washes, it, 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 it takes away the guilt of that sin, but it doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the mind. It doesn't produce transformation. There's actually two problems that are listed that we just read, and we'll kind, of, we'll kind of flip them around. We'll do the second one first. But he's saying that the problem with the tabernacle and the problem with the system is that, that it was being operated, and it was, it was trying to ease their conscience, but it could never do it. It could only solve the problem of the outward man. And this is, this is a problem with our rules and our regulations. Is there an attempt to look and feel okay? This is how the church, even inside of a Christian church, this, this can continue to be a problem because we look at the outward appearance. It's something that we feel like, if I could just do these things, then people will think I'm okay. Maybe I'll feel okay. But there's no reality to it. So this, this system was only, was only um, dealing with the washings and the regulations imposed on them. But if you look at it deeply, you realize the system is flawed. We come in here, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I come in every day. As I, as I think about my day, I realize I blew it in some way or another. I blew it. And I can't imagine somebody coming into a church, and actually I can't imagine it, to be honest with you. I can't imagine it. Coming in and saying, I've blown it. I can't do this. I know that I, that, I, that I goofed. And we said, here, do these things and, and, and you'll be okay. That's what's happened in the old system. Do these things and you'll be okay. It's why the Catholic religion that, offered, that says, here, say these Hail Marys, do these things, do this penance and you'll be okay. It can never cleanse so he said, as I come in, I'm like, I can't get this right. I need help. The reason that we're here, church, and I've said this to you before, we are the largest group of self-proclaimed sinners on the planet. The largest group of self-proclaimed sinners on the planet saying, I need help. I need help. The message of the church, what if it was, okay, well, what I want to tell you today is that if you don't get things right, God's really angry at you. I know he's angry at me. That's why I'm here. So we see the deficiencies of the old covenant. We see the deficiencies of the tabernacle system. As you'd come in and the priest would say, I'll make a sacrifice for you. And here's where the law tells you that you're wrong. That's a problem. That's a problem. And what they did, which is a normal human thing, is they said, well, we'll just try really hard to get it all right. And there were those that did okay, 
and they felt like they were doing really great, and then there were those that didn't, and they had no hope. Both were equally lost because they misunderstood the symbol. It says in verse 9, this is symbolic for the present age. The error that the Hebrews made over and over and over again, and we make it too, is that they continually elevated the symbol to the sacred status. God's saying the symbol isn't the point. What's underneath the symbol is the point. The symbol isn't the point. What's underneath the symbol is the point. You know, we, every Sunday we take an offering in here and we talk about tithing. If you wrote a check literally for 10% every Sunday, do you realize that that's not the point? We talked a couple weeks ago about Abraham who offered 10th to Melchizedek. And what that symbol means is it's saying to God, everything I have, all that I am is yours. It's not about a dollar amount, a percentage amount. It's about a heart. So we can't elevate the symbol above what the main point is. And yet we do it all the time. I'll give you an example of this. And luckily, not luckily, praise God, by the grace of God, this church has moved in another direction. But if you would have gone to a church in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s, and if I would have showed up wearing jeans and a T-shirt <laughs> to preach, they would have booed me off the stage. <laughs> and how many of you can remember those days? I remember as a kid going to churches, and they'd have, like, thrones on the stage for the pastoral staff to sit in. And they all wore suits and ties. You know what? At some point, someone decided that in order to go to church, we need to dress up in our best. You know why? Because God is creator of the universe and he deserves our best. Does that sound like a bad idea? No, it doesn't, <laughs> right? That's not a bad, it's not bad to look nice. Just so you know. Some Sunday, I'll come in in a suit and tie, and you guys will all go, what is going on here? And I'll just do it because, hey, I felt like it. Jesus is awesome, and I wanted to get dressed up. You know, there's no problem with that, and I'm not dissing on that. But what happened over time was it became, not only is it a good idea to dress up, but if you don't come in here with a suit and tie on, you might as well just leave. And even though it might not have been said, it was implied by the look that certain people might give you or the fact that there would be a group of men waiting to usher me off the stage. It's like, why, who let the homeless guy preach? <laughs> Jesus was. Anyway. We get this picture of, of how something that was not a bad idea, dress up, look nice, turned into something that got elevated, almost more important than showing up and praising God, was looking nice. And any of you who've ever experienced that or you know people who have experienced that and they'll never step foot in a church again because of what happened to them as they walked in the doors and they felt judged because they didn't look well, they didn't look good enough. I got to participate in a different church culture in Argentina and every Sunday and every chapel service that the students had to go to, they dressed up slacks and shirts and they were taught, this is, this is what's expected of you. And it was a shock for me, right? Here I am, American missionary, and I'm coming in, and I'm ready to wear my, my T-shirt and my jeans. I'm 25 years old, and that's what I'd wear to church. And I'm like, okay, no, every, every Sunday, not only just Sundays, but the chapel services, I'm having to wear slacks and my dress shoes, and my dress shoes 
had never been worn that much. <laughs> and every, every time we gathered together, everybody looked so good. And it broke my heart a little bit because I, I looked around at the world around them. I'm like, how many people will never step foot in the door because they don't feel like they can fit in when this is meant to be the largest group of self-proclaimed sinners on the planet? So I say, let's not judge people who look nice. <laughs> and let's definitely not judge those who can't. I left all my dress clothes in Argentina. So I looked at those Bible school students and I said, you guys need these way more than me. <laughs> that was my gift to them. And I, and I said, come to America, man. No, just kidding. <laughs> you can wear shorts. I preached in shorts once. I don't do that very often. Because it's like 30 degrees outside in June. Anyway, <laughs> we can see this picture, though, of the fact the human heart elevates things to the improper place. And God is furious at it. And he's not fooled by it. Think about what we see in, in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. And this is what it says. Verse 16, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice. You will not delight in sacrifice. David understood this. And he's talking about the tabernacle system. He's saying, this system is not where your heart is. You, God, you don't delight in this. It says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. For you are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. David understood, and there are many that, that did. They understood that this system is not to please God. It's an attempt to, to paint a picture for us that God doesn't just want our sacrifices. He wants our hearts. He wants us to understand. He wants us to know he loves us. He wants us to know he has better for us. God's saying, do you think that I want your bowl? Do you think I want your goat? Do you think God needs your tithe? Do you think that God needs your singing? Some of you are like, nope. <laughs> you know what? One of the worst things about being a musician and growing up in a singing family is sometimes singing can actually be about the song or about the voice. Do <laughs> you think God's impressed? I remember standing around in college with a group of, of music majors, and they're all trying to outdo each other with their harmonies. <laughs> just like, ah, I wonder if I could sing off tune on purpose. And it's really hard to do. <laughs> but just this moment of realizing we're just doing this because we feel good about it. God's going, I don't need your song. I don't need your bowl. I don't need your gift. He's like, I want your brokenness, not your bowl. Because <laughs> some of you got that that is kind of a joke. <laughs> he wants your brokenness, a broken and contrite heart. A heart that says, I, I need you. He will not despise I look at, if you need another illustration, look at Isaiah 29, <laughs> starting in verse 13. And this is, and the Lord said, 
Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Because they drew near, they, they, they said the right things, they looked okay, but their hearts were far from God. You know what's so crazy about this is he says, I'm going to continue to do good things, even in their midst. I'm going to do wonder upon wonder, but they're not going to understand it. They're not going to see it because they can't, because they're looking at the outward appearance and not what's happening on the inside. This is God's displeasure. Amos chapter 5, words that you rarely read in the scripture. Amos chapter 5, verse 21, it says, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I hate. Can you think of how many times in scripture does God say, I hate? I think it's fun to talk about Amos just because we don't get to talk about Amos very much. But there's a reason for that probably because it's angry. Anyway, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take them away. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Isn't that a, it's a crazy picture? God's frustration. These feasts, they weren't something that the people just decided to do. These things in Leviticus chapter 23, God commanded them. He said, if you don't hold to these feasts, if you don't throw these parties and celebrate, I'm going to kill you. And then he comes in Amos and he says, these feasts, they, they're an abomination. You know why? Because they started to celebrate the party and the feast, and even they'd sang the words, but their hearts were far from God. And he said, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice flow down. Don't just come and sing the songs. Don't just come and participate in the worship gathering. Let it change you. Let it transform you or you're in danger of frustrating God. That's a message we need, church. We need to be reminded of that. That God is not fooled by your church attendance. He wants your heart. I like to see your faces, though, so don't stop coming to church. No, I'm just <laughs> We come back to our picture that we started with this this image that God uses of a wedding. And have you ever met somebody, or maybe you were this person, just so desperate to get married or have that big party? I think I remember people, and I won't mention any names, but I remember as, <laughs> as teenage girls, they had a binder this tall of their wedding plans. I was like, whoa! That seems crazy to me, but I'm a boy. <laughs> But they were so infatuated with the idea of a wedding that they, they were like, whoever the man is, we'll, we'll fit him in somewhere. <laughs> you know what? It's not a problem to throw a big wedding. Do you know that? Just like it's not a bad idea to look nice to come to church. It's not a, it's, there's nothing wrong with having a big wedding. It's a party. And guess what? It's an illustration. It's an image of the biggest party that's ever going to take place in existence. 
that I'll tell you that, that day, that wedding day, that's going to blow away any of your weddings. I look forward to that day. And our weddings, the weddings you go to, you can see them as an image in a picture. And even if the people that aren't there, they don't even, they may say the words that have been said for generations just because it's tradition, but they're still painting a picture to the world around them of a love of a God who said, I choose you. I want to be with you. I will be faithful to you no matter what. And guess what? No human being can be honest and true to their vows completely, but God is. But we can't elevate marriage or wedding above the relationship. It's not about that first day. It's about what happens after, right, Jerry and Ann? You guys are coming up on, what, 67 years of marriage? (laughs) The only reason I know that is because last year Jerry wore his T-shirt that said, what was it, married at 22, married for 66 years, 88 years old. The doubles have it. And today, Jerry's wearing his grandpa shirt. I really, really appreciate that. (laughs) It's not about that first day. In fact, the wedding and the wedding supper of the lamb is going to be the last day, but the start of eternity for us. I'm so excited about that. But let's take a look back over to Hebrews as we wrap this up. This next chunk is so huge. It's massive. It says this, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, though the greater and more perfect, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made but with hands, that is, not of this creation. You guys catch what's happening there? That Christ came not to serve in the human tent, the tabernacle made by man, but the perfect tent, the thing that that's a symbol of. He entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All this talk about the tabernacle. We've been talking about it for a few weeks. High priests and all that stuff. It all boils down to this. Jesus, he comes and he makes a better sacrifice. Not in the tent built by man, made of this creation, but in the eternal holy place with God. A pure, unblemished. He took our place, and we've talked about this. He parachuted down. He became flesh to, to show us the way, to live the life that we can't live, that he could die a death for us, not just to, to cover our sins as the, bloods of, as the blood of a goat or a bull or a heifer might do, but to cleanse us, to purify us, to make us righteous, righteous in the sight of God for eternal redemption. This is our problem solved. This is our problem solved clean conscience can't be produced by any list of religious ritual duties. It can't. There's only one place. It says that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from, conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
This is a whole new thing that happened. A whole system set up to point to this. It's all there to point to this. And there's still people that miss this. Even in the church, we still go back to this tabernacle way of doing things. We still go back and we rely on the list. It's hard not to do, right? Especially parents, right? It's really hard to understand how to do this with grace to point your kids in the right direction without holding them up to some impossible list. I haven't figured that out yet. Luckily, Ember's only, she's not even two yet. So let me tell you how that goes. <laughs> the scriptures are saying that the conscience is only cleansed, is only cleaned through the blood of Christ. The conscience is only cleaned through the blood of Christ. How does that happen? How does that happen? How do you and I, who fall apart, who fail, who blow it every day, and that's just, I'm just talking about myself here, how do we end the day with a clean conscience? Only through what Jesus has done. He took on flesh to save us. It says he entered once for all. Isn't that an awesome phrase? Once for all. That means he died for everybody who, who lived in the Old Testament that trusted in God. He died for them. For everybody who ever would live. For us who are living thousands of years after that day. He did it once for all. He covered our sins. For my kids, my unborn children. For my grandkids. The Lord doesn't come back. He's died for them. Once for all that that is the only way to live in this life with a clean conscience. It says, John, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way through the curtain. And on that day that Jesus died, that curtain in the physical temple, the temple built by, built by man, the hands of man, that curtain, I wonder what that actually looked like. We have a picture in Scripture that it tore. It tore in two. But that's, God said, I've made the way now. I've made the way. Let me show you. This was all a symbol. Therefore, he is the mediator. This is verse 15 of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He's a mediator of a new covenant. This is the plan of God. That he would set up this old covenant to point forward. There are those that were part of the, under the old covenant that trusted in Jesus. And they will see that promise fulfilled. We get to see him. We get to see him in a different way to look back and read the scriptures, and we almost get lost in this history of it. But the reality of it is still as present to us today as it was to them if we allow the Holy Spirit to, to let that work happen in our lives. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, we know that the law cannot perfect. We know the law cannot inspire love. The grace of Jesus can and should inspire love. Did you catch that? Like that's like the most obvious sentence ever stated in a gospel-believing church. 
the grace of Jesus can and should inspire love. And when I see people living their lives in a, in a joyless, in a emotionless, and I'm not saying you have to cry, <laughs> but inwardly, there should be some sort of movement as you contemplate the fact that he's done this for you. It's different than that first covenant, the law, that you can try as hard as you want, but you cannot, it cannot produce love. That God created us. He created us with an intention for relationship. That relationship wasn't meant to be one of ritual duty. It was meant to be one of love and fellowship. And this is his plan, that through Jesus, we can enter into relationship with him. Not just as a savior, but as our brother, as somebody who understands us. And he's called us and he's saying, come with me. So this is how our conscience is clean. And at night, right? I don't know if any of you have this experience. You wake up for whatever reason at three in the morning. And for whatever reason, three in the morning is the moment that all the other voices are silent and your conscience is just going, meh, 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 meh. <laughs> I think that means that you guys ex have experienced that, right? <laughs> I saying, why didn't you do this today? It might, it might be as trivial as, you know, there's some dishes that are still out on your counter. You're not a good mom. Oh, why can't you do that? Why can't you make this happen? Or it could be as, as explicit as it is. What these thoughts were, what did you say? These things you should have said, these things you shouldn't have said. And you replay the day and you lay there and you go, man, I blew it. Anybody else have that experience? How do we, how do you fall back asleep? I, I, I've had nights where I've laid there awake. It's like I'm trying to say, okay, I'll just do better tomorrow. I just won't, I won't say that. I won't do that. I'll, I'll try harder. I'll do better. I'll bring my bowl. I'll bring my goat. <laughs> I'll sing better. <laughs> I'll perform better. Say, I did it. I did it. And I go, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Help me. Help me. And he says, trade me that guilt. <laughs> I'll take it. I already did, actually. Give it to me, and let me give you forgiveness. Let me give you a clean conscience. And you think to yourself, maybe it's just me again. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not a fair trade, God. <laughs> You're going to take my guilt and you're going to give me a clean conscience, and you're going to say, go to sleep, kid. I got you. That's not fair. And that's the gospel. And that inspires love. And I wake up, and I'm like, I'm not going to just try harder today. <laughs> I'm grateful today. Thank you. And then he says, I'll help you. <laughs> Continue to walk in that. He says, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we walk shoulder to shoulder, hand, arms linked up with brothers and sisters. This is the way that we're meant to live. 
in a kind of relationship that we don't have to be ashamed of our sin, but we confess it so that we can be cleansed and walk in newness of life. It says in Romans 8, it, Romans 8 is one of the best descriptions of this kind of life. Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning, some of you are feeling heavy. And you might come in and put a smile on because that's what you do at church. <laughs> but you're feeling heavy. You need to know, for now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rest. He's given it to you. Trade. Trade the guilt. Trade the broken conscience. Trade the desire to perfect yourself, to make yourself holy. Give it to him. Say, thank you. Help me. He's the mediator of a better covenant. And that's what we're celebrating today. That's what we celebrate every week. This morning as we close the gathering, we're going to come and we're going to receive communion. And we use that terminology, we receive it, because it's like everything else that God has given us. It's something he's given us. Do you know that you can still live in the tabernacle system? You can still go back to it. And it's tempting at times because it feels more fair and just. So I need to pay for that. I need to, I need to, to make it right. He said, here, here's a new covenant. Receive it. This cup, so we're going to come in just a moment. This cup represents my blood shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. He said, this, this bread, this cracker, in, in just a moment, this cracker represents my body broken for you. Eat it and remember me. Eat it and say thank you. Eat it and worship. Not because you got to make your voice sound good enough that he'll accept it. Some of you, that'll never happen. <laughs> All of us, that'll never happen. And he's saying, sing it. Sing it from your heart because I don't care what it sounds like. <laughs> sing it because it's joy. Sing it because it's life. Live. Live with a clean conscience. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you so much for your love for us, your plan. We ask that you would speak that truth to us in a way that's, that's meaningful so we can read words and, and even as they did in the Old Testament these things can be taught to us but ultimately our souls and our spirits need an awakening from you and this morning I just pray that you would breathe that, that freshness into that truth that we cling to that it wouldn't just become a ritual duty to come and receive communion that we wouldn't just do it out of obligation because it's what we do every Sunday but that you would speak the beauty of it to us that we would we would understand the transfer that you've made as you've taken our guilt and you've given us righteousness and that this covenant is not based on our performance but it's based on your performance for that we're eternally grateful and I can't wait to the day and we're not bound by this flesh anymore. That day, we eagerly await. And we know because of what you've said that we have hope in you. So you speak that over us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.